Every snap is an interview. After the snap. What a snap. And keep your mouth shut, 50! I lead by example. With Blake and Reed Ferguson discussing life in, out, and after football. To be able to leave walking away with a degree and a championship, uh, it couldn't be any better. Yeah! Well, you can take this boy out the real south on a but you can't take the real south out of my voice. And now here we go again, twist a little bit of teeth because you got thick skin. What is up, everybody, and welcome back to After the Snap. I am your host, Blake Ferguson, and I am joined by my lovely co-host and brother, Reed Ferguson. On today's episode, we have Avery Atkins, former LSU punter and kickoff specialist, joining us. But first, Reed, can I just, can I talk about this trip that I took this past weekend for like two seconds? Yes, that was the first thing I was going to bring up. I am so interested in hearing about your uh, your trip to Kentucky. For the listeners who don't follow me on social media, um, I went to Louisville this weekend with two of my best friends from LSU, and we have all recently gotten into bourbon. We like drinking it, like learning about how it's made, and so we booked a trip to go to Louisville where there it's, I mean, right in the heart of bourbon country. We went to five different distilleries. We went to Maker's Mark, Bullet, Buffalo Trace, Angel's Envy. And then the last one, and probably one of my favorites that we went to was a small distillery on about a hundred acres of property and they distill out of a barn. It's called Three Boys Farm Distillery. And if you are ever in the Louisville area, I highly suggest going on a tour at Three Boys Farm because it is authentically like stripped down the the way that bourbon is made. And um, something that they pride themselves on is, is that they don't filter their bourbon. It's not cut. I literally pulled bourbon out of the barrel to bottle it myself and it was it was incredible there were two other things that we did while we were in louisville that made the trip even more fun beyond what we were already there for the first night we just so happened to see that the 2022 national farm machinery show was in town. Please elaborate. And following the National Farm Machinery Show around the country is the National Championship Tractor Pull. And when you're in town with nothing to do and the National Championship Tractor Pull is going on, you're not not going to go. So we bought tickets on Ticketmaster. This is a very official event. We picked out our seats and us along with 18,000 other people watched seven classes of tractors pull an even heavier tractor. And it was electric. Is this, is this like a, like a, like a drag racing event where you can kind of trick out, 
your tractor yes. and, and make it faster. You put a bigger engine in it, all that kind of stuff. Yes. And that's, that's a big part of, of what they do. They were interviewing the winners after each class did their championship and they were, you know, thanking their team. Like this is a very official, like they have, they have a, a big team of people that are helping put together and trick out and, maximize the performance on these tractors and they're not just any tractors. These, these tractors are, are made to maximize torque and I guess just pulling the heaviest weight, the farthest. And so they were, this is not not your, your, your grandpa's John Deere, not your grandpa's John Deere, but there were several John Deere in the, in the tractor pull, there were John Deere, there were international harvester, there were case there. I mean, it was, and, and people, people were pulling for their favorite brand of tractor. Like it was very obvious when the John Deere teams did well, because the John Deere fans would, would get real loud and, and get excited. And then the same with international and, and case, but that was that was a top five most redneck thing that I've ever done. And it sounds like it. And we have family in East Tennessee, and I'm pretty sure that we're re- related to the people on Moonshiners. So if that if that doesn't tell you something, then uh, it was it was pretty freaking redneck. The the second thing that we did after we were done with all of our distillery tours, I had a, a mutual friend of mine hit me up and ask me if I had any time to come out to a horse farm out in, it's about an hour east of Louisville. And I really didn't know what to expect. We weren't doing anything Monday morning. So we were like, sure. Yeah, we'll, you know, we'll come out there. And, and so she was like, okay, I've got a tour set up for you at 1115. And I was like, okay. So do they, do these places do, tours that you can just pay for or these private tours i I didn't know i didn't know at the time and so when we showed up we're driving through the kentucky countryside it's absolutely breathtaking beautiful like horse stables as we're driving through and we arrive at it's called coolmore coolmore stud and there's like this massive stone gate it's got like the call box where you, you know, tell them who you are and why you're there and stuff. And so I, I called, I called them in and I told them who I was and that I was there for a tour at 1115. And they said, come right back, Mr. Ferguson, we've been expecting you. And I was like, wow, this is, this is like royalty. We go in and we check in with the, with the front desk uh, lady and, in comes my mutual friend. Her name is Deb and her husband, Eric showed up as well. Eric was actually the, the connection at this particular horse farm. And so they said, yeah, we're just waiting on the GM to come. Uh, and he's going to, he's going to tour you around. And I was like, okay, this will be, this will be a lot of fun. So he shows up and we walk down, you know, we walk down this, this road, it's probably a quarter of a mile long. And, and we get to the first stable and in the first stable is American Pharaoh 2015 triple crown winner, 
justify 2018 triple crown winner. Both of them are the most, the two most recent triple crown winners in race in, in horse racing, as well as maximum security, who, if you remember, won the Kentucky Derby in 2019, but was actually disqualified for interference during that race. So he actually won the race, but was not crowned the Kentucky Derby winner. So he was there. And then uncle Mo was the last one in that particular stable. And he's got this incredibly high stud fee. He's, he's put out, I think some, some Kentucky Derby winners. He's fathered some Kentucky Derby winners. And so we're standing there and out comes American Pharaoh. They're bringing out American Pharaoh to us. At this point, I'm like, my mouth is, is like dropped open. My jaws on the floor because like American Pharaoh when was your, when you started your day, you didn't think that you'd be, you know, no. nose to nose with a triple crown winner. No. No, I didn't think that I would be holding my hand up for him to lick my hand while we were just standing around, you know, at this horse farm. It was like it was all moving in slow motion. American Pharaoh was the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years. This I horse watching, is, uh, I remember watching the race. On, I remember watching when he won. Yes. So this horse is in the top, top tier of, of horse racing. And so then we are walking around and we're just checking out all the stables and, and the GM is, he's asked one of the, he's asked one of the people that are in charge, are in charge of the stables. He's, he said, is, is justify around? Like, is, is he, you know, what's, what's justify doing? Cause he wasn't in his little stable area. And they were like, oh, he's, he's gone for a wash. He'll, he'll come back. He'll come back soon. And so we go and we're kind of killing some time and we come back and out comes this massive stallion. Like I thought American Pharaoh was just like huge, muscular, vain, thoroughbred horse. And then they brought out justify and it was like, oh my Lord four, five inches taller than me. Like I'm just like, it's, it, I can't even put it into words, like seeing this kind of mixture of like performance and also like something so beautiful. Like it was, it was wild. It was surreal. Wow. That was, that was my Monday morning. We were hanging out, you know, we're hanging out at this place and and he's, introducing us to all these different horses and it was, it was incredible. It really was. And so that was sort of the end cap of our trip. I took Kylie to the airport after that and and he flew out, but it was, it was unbelievable. So, so I know you were texting me um, when you were on your way back into town and you sent me a picture of a couple things you had in the, in the bed of your pickup truck that you were, hauling back to uh hauling back home can you tell me what you plan to do uh with what you had in the back of your truck while we were at three boys farm distillery we purchased a couple of bourbon barrels and typically what those distilleries do with the bourbon barrels is they will send them off to scotland 
to be used to age uh, scotch. And by law, once once a distillery, a bourbon distillery distills a batch of bourbon in a new oak barrel, they can't use it again. That's that's like one of the qualifications for bourbon. They usually send them off to Scotland. And so we were like, well, can we, you know, can we buy one? And they were like, sure, hundred bucks. And I was like, okay. So we loaded up two in the back of the truck, one for me, one for Kylie. And, and, uh, and he, in his woodworking master craft, I think he's going to do something cool and finish it off, finish it real nice and make it into some, some sort of, you know, cool, like bar or something for the man cave. I'm not really sure what he's going to do with them just they, yet. Do they, but, do they have a scent to them? Like, do they smell real strong? Yeah. My garage smells like whiskey right now. <laughs> and he told us the, the, we got, we got to talk to the master distiller for a little bit. And he told us, he said, if these sit outside and are in the sun, they will, they will drain out about a gallon more juice and you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to consume it because it's really just what's inside of the wood right now. But I, I'm going to have to put a, like a pan underneath the bar- the barrel sitting in my garage so that it doesn't leak out onto the floor of my garage. That's what I hauled all the way back to Atlanta. I've got to bring, Kylie's down to him at some point and I'll probably leave mine with him as well so that he can work some magic and make something cool out of them. But that was, that was a cool little token that we were able to bring back with us because it was truly the three boys visiting the three boys farm. It was Caleb, Kylie and myself. And that was one that we were really looking forward to. So that was our trip to Kentucky. It was an unbelievable weekend and I'm already looking forward to the next time that I get to go back. It was, there were so many places that we didn't get to visit that we want to visit. And so I'm really looking forward to it. But before we get to our interview with Avery Atkins, I know there was something that you wanted to discuss and maybe even rant on a little bit. I wanted to rant a little bit on the whole MLB lockout situation, just because obviously you and I are huge baseball fans. For the people listening, I think we have a probably a pretty good amount of, of fans of, uh, of, of baseball as well. I haven't gotten to pay as much attention to the lockout itself. I know that they delayed spring training like a week. Is that right? Um, a couple of weeks. It won't. That was one of the things I was going to say. It won't. I think it was supposed to start um, maybe within the next couple of days, okay, um, or maybe maybe like right now. But yeah. not right right now, they have delayed it until March fifth at the earliest, um, which is one gripe of a lot of baseball fans is because they've been having this, these meetings that are like fifteen minutes, thirty minutes, and it's like you know they're they're taking a break for a couple of days and then are these again for you know, real short meetings between are they the Zoom calls? In the player union. No, these, I think they're in person. What's the point of a 15-minute meeting in person? Well, I, don't see, I don't know. That's the whole point. Nobody knows why they aren't meeting, and nobody knows why they haven't been meeting 
Like they didn't meet for a long time after the season ended, which is fine. Like give yourself some time to work up negotiation tactics and whatnot, what you're going to ask for, all that kind of stuff when you go into the negotiation room. But when you you know, they've kind of set up all these meetings all of a sudden, like right before spring training is supposed to start. And of course, MLB doesn't want to talk about any of the economic issues at hand, which is what the players union is trying to iron out because they want more money, obviously coming in for their players. The young guys, uh, more specifically, they want to, uh, for whoever's not familiar with it, there is basically a six year period until from when you play your first game in the major leagues until you uh, hit free agency. And three of those years are arbitration years. And so it's a, a negotiation between the player and the team uh, that go that, that, and they say, okay, well, we think we're worth this much. We think you're worth this much. And they kind of come to an agreement on a number. And it's usually the first time that players can start getting paid a little bit of money without having to, without going through free agency. Are players that go through arbitration for the first time, are they usually happy with the number that they receive in that first year of arbitration? I would say it probably depends. Uh, I would say probably not because most guys would like to, you know, uh, you know, sometimes guys hit arbitration and they've come off a really good season. And so they're like, okay, well, the arbitration number might be, you know, substantial, but it's not what I would get in free agency. So, um, it, it's, it's definitely not the arbitration numbers are definitely not anywhere near what you would see for free agency numbers. But obviously, you know, obviously speaking, you're not on the open market, but a lot of times these, these negotiations and, and arbitration go to a mediator. And, um, you know, that, you know, that's, that's its own deal. But, uh, basically the, the players union, one of the main issues is they want to raise the amount of money that is in that arbitration pool, um, that, that teams can spend on players. Anyway, the one big thing that I thought has been a positive, uh, that has come out of the meeting so far is I believe there, there is definitely going to be a DH in both leagues now. Uh, which is huge, especially for um, a lot of the guys that are that are like fringe, you know, power hitters kind of guys. That that will uh, allow them to find a team. I mean, because that basically opens up. Oh, excuse me. That basically opens up sixteen more or fifteen more spots for batters to hit in line. Fifteen to sixteen more spots in the National League for batters to hit in those lineups. So I think that's, that's a really good, that's also a really good way to get more guys paid because a fringe guy for the Yankees or the Red Sox, like, like, you know, Schwarber is a great example. The Red Sox re-signed Schwarber, but if he had waited and he didn't really want to play the field, uh, he could have chosen to maybe wait and test his, uh, test his luck on the open market for a national league team, but obviously he went back to the Red Sox. But last thing on the, on the DH rule, is that something that was, was heavily contested by the owners or is that like who, like, like who was asking for that? Was that the players or was that the owners that was, that was really pushing for 
DHs on on in both leagues? I think it was the players because it allows more guys to get paid more money. It's a it's better quality for the game for fans, right? That's one less pitcher you have to see hit every inning or every three innings, and one more you know strong hitter that can hit higher up in your lineup. Um, and it and it kind of evens out the playing field in terms of obviously when there's interleague play or even in the World Series when American League teams have to go to National League ballparks, they sometimes have to bring up um, an extra pitcher or somebody that uh, or an extra pinch hitter or somebody into the into onto the bench uh, because they know their pitcher is going to be hitting and American League pitchers obviously don't hit. Uh, only when they go to National League ballparks. So it's just interesting to see. I mean, obviously the big thing that the MLB owners want is the playoff revenue. That's kind of been, been the big push for the past couple of years. They're trying to expand the playoff uh, spots and really get to what a lot of the the four main, you know, the, the other three main, three to four main leagues in the United States are doing, which is basically half of the team's in the league make the playoffs. So it's, it's definitely interesting to watch. It's very frustrating because from a fan's perspective, there hasn't, you know, there hasn't been any free agency signings. You know, the, the, the lack of baseball news has, has just been frustrating. I think from a, you know, from a individual team standpoint, but also the league as a whole. So in end, end of my rant. Hopefully we get some baseball soon. I know, this is the time of year where we're looking at, you know, pitchers and catchers reporting and, and there's kind of this buzz as we get, get closer to baseball season. And it just feels, it just feels like that's not there. And so hopefully we will get there soon. Hopefully, what did you say? March 5th is the that's earliest. The earliest it could start. Earliest it could start. So hopefully that will be, um, hopefully that'll happen. But we will see, and we will keep you all informed. All right. Well, on this week's episode, like I mentioned earlier, we have Avery Atkins, former LSU punter and kickoff specialist, joining us. Here is our interview with Avery. This week, joining us on After the Snap, we have four-time SEC Academic Honor Roll member, which is one of my uh, favorite accolades that I received when I was at LSU. So props to you. Um, he holds the basically every career record in every cat, every kickoff category at LSU. He wore the number 18 during his senior year at LSU. He was named a semifinalist for the 2021 William Campbell trophy. That is college football's premier scholar athlete award. And perhaps the highest honor that he has received of them all, he was named the X-Factor Athlete by the Opelika Auburn News in 2016. He's currently preparing for the NFL draft and his pro day. Avery Atkins, everybody. Awesome. Thank (laughs) you for that introduction. (laughs) I'm happy to be here. Well, we had Cade on two weeks ago and we we felt that it, we would be remiss not to have the other LSU specialist um, entering the NFL draft this year on the pod so 
Uh, welcome in. I thought it was pretty funny as Blake was kind of putting together the notes, just something that stuck out. He mentioned all of the kickoff records that you have. Uh, it's funny that he played with you. I played with James Hairston, who I think had um, a lot of the kickoff records, obviously, before you uh, broke them. Funny, just a funny tie together there. But uh, so first off, just I just I, I need an unbiased opinion. You spent uh, you obviously spent a few years with Blake at LSU. I was there for a season, but I need an unbiased opinion. Tell me what that was like and what kind of teammate he was. Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, Jeez, no, off to big. a off to a hot start here. Reed. <laughs> I had uh, I had to I had to get off my chest at the beginning. No, Blake was awesome. You know. I think we, we roomed together for what six months at the end of your career. Something yeah, it was like that. that. It was that final uh, season. It was the fall. Yeah. It was great. I mean, I learned everything that I know now from Blake. Kind of followed in his footsteps. So, um, you know, he's a huge part of my college career. Uh, even though we only spent two years together, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, he means a lot to me. And you don't have to. For him. You don't. You don't have to butter me up like that. You can. Uh, you yeah, can. I, you can I, talk. I, I, You'll, you'll, we'll get to some stuff later on. Maybe you can. What was, what was the best piece of advice me. that he get? What, what's the, what's the best thing you grabbed from Blake without um, pumping his head up too much? I'll try not to pump his head up too much. Uh, probably just, if I'm, if I'm being honest, probably just leading by example. Um, you know, you don't, in our position, you don't really have to talk that much. Not saying people won't listen, but we all know how that role is. Um, but if you do the right thing, People will follow you, and, you know, that's what I learned from them. So you come to LSU, you played safety in high school, you are doing field goals and kickoffs when you come in. Cole Tracy is obviously the starter, and you end up transitioning from field goals and kickoffs to just kickoffs to punts and kickoffs. Yeah. What was the hardest part about that transition? I mean, you had your you had a lot of different roles. You were obviously willing to do whatever it took. What was the hardest part? Probably just like the uncertainty. You know, like like you said, I got here and you know it was like, look, you kick you can kick field goals after Cole, and you know I'll be the first to admit that field goals were never my strong suit. So I was like, okay, you know I was perfectly fine kicking off for four years and not being that. But you know opportunities arose where. I could step in and try to, you know, fill a spot. Like, you know, when, when Josh uh, transferred to West Virginia, there was a chance for me to be the backup punter. So I was, you know, I'll do it. After learning under Zach for two years, it, I kind of got the opportunity to take that role this year. I talked a little bit about your willingness to just kind of do whatever it took in, in on the football field. That was obviously very apparent in your academic success. You're a pre-med student, 4.0, whatever GPA, just incredibly smart, incredibly gifted, whatever it was. I don't, I don't know. It was probably f- over a 4.0 that no doubt played a part in you receiving the number 18. What does the number 18 mean to you? I'd be lying if I said it I wasn't kind of shocking. Obviously I knew the role that I play, you know, getting to LSU. I mean, even like you said, being an Auburn fan before that, I knew what the 18 Jersey meant at LSU. Um, so getting to LSU, I just never really, that wasn't necessarily a goal in mind just because I didn't think it was reachable. I tell the story a lot when we had that ceremony when it was time to give out the second 18 jersey along with the moan. You know, I think Cade was sitting right next to me, and I was, like, talking to him, and I was like, okay, like, these are all the people that I think are going to get it. Like, these are all the people that I think deserve it. I mean, and I mean, never did I think it was going to be. It was just an incredible honor. Um, 
like I said, I was very shocked. I kind of was speechless, but you know, it means a lot. And being the first, you know, specialist to get it, it really meant a lot for me. What was, uh, what was it like being pre-med and also being a D1 SEC football player competing at the level that you were? Uh, a lot of late nights, lots of studying, lots of flashcards. I always wanted to do pre-med. That's always just kind of, you know, the view I had, the goal I had. I knew that it was going to be a long, you know, three years, but, you know, I put in the work. I, you know, I have a pre-med degree, had the opportunity to go to med school, hopefully in the future. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. It was very tough, but uh, I think it was worth it. Not a bad thing to have in your back pocket. No, no, it's not a bad plan B. Not at all. Certainly not. Um, how, did, how did you make the decision to pursue the route of NFL over, like you said, going to med school now? I really give a lot of credit to Jack Marucci because at the beginning of the season, I was that kind of was never my, you know, that just wasn't my expectations. That wasn't where I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, I knew I was going to play one one more season. Um, this would be the, you know, the final season no matter what. And, you know, he, he brought in a couple guys for me that had, you know, done very things that I'm doing, you know, we're pre-med and I'm, I can't think of the, game, the guy's name right now, but. He went, you know, he went to pre-med eventually, you know, he's like, let me just do a pro day and let me try out for the NFL and see what happens. And he played, I think like 10, 12 years for the Kansas city chiefs that's started at center. So, you know, Jack, Jack was like, Hey, like just give it a shot. You never know what's going to happen. And so that's what I'm doing. So you and I were obviously on the 2019 team together. And I was talking to a guy today at lunch actually, and he's a Georgia fan. And he said that, when he was at the SEC championship, when we beat Georgia um, in Atlanta, he said, watching that game, it felt like that LSU just knew that they were going to beat everybody. Yeah. And I asked, I asked this question to Cade two weeks ago. Do you feel like that that is the best football team in the history of college football? Without a doubt. Uh, I actually was having this conversation with someone the other day and he was saying like I think what is it the is it 2000 Miami team something like that you know he, I think he's was it Ray Rice was on their team or something like that and uh, maybe Ray Lewis Ray, Ray Lewis, Lewis. Yeah. Ray Lewis and he was like you know they had Ray Lewis and I was like so right. he can't cover Jamar he couldn't cover yeah. I mean I'd love to see him go up against Clyde like I mean you know you, you could you could it's endless I mean obviously in that 2020 draft, I mean, we saw that it was endless. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question. I think if you look up strength of schedule, you know, numbers put up, everything, I, I don't think it's even comparable. Hitting on your transition to the NFL, what has your training looked like? And as far as, like, doing, I guess, like, uh, doing some film work or anything, are you watching NFL, NFL guys? Are you watching um, – you know, their, their techniques or have you talked to anybody? What is, what is kind of your whole training deal look like right now? I'm not delusional. I know that, you know, I'm probably not going to get drafted. I, you know, I'm looking to sign, just get a chance somewhere. You know, I was talking with my agent. We felt like it was best for me to stay in Baton Rouge. Um, just, be, just for, you know, one, it's feasible for me to stay here. Um, so I've been here. He's kind of sent me workouts that he's had people do in the past. So I've been doing that the past, you know, ever since, you know, mid-January. But, yeah, just, you know, with me being here and not having a kicking coach really in a, you know, drivable distance, I, yeah, I've had to look at a lot of film. I've sent some film off just to get it looked at. But I try to 
you know, an hour a day looking at my, my own film from the previous day. And then some of the guys that are more comparable to my size in the NFL right now and trying to, in some ways, mimic what they're doing. What are you looking forward to most about pursuing this NFL opportunity? I mean, it's always been a dream of mine as a kid. I mean, as I'm sure both of you can attest to, it's always a dream to play in the NFL. So even getting just the opportunity to, you know, do a pro day or, you know, you know, hopefully sign with a team at some point, like it's just, I mean, it's a lifelong dream that, you know, I, I want to accomplish. So following up on that, how do you think LSU prepared you for that journey to the NFL? Really well. I mean, and you got to give credit to the staff that was there. Um, you know, Coach O and his staff, Coach Moff and his staff. I've heard stories. Uh, like I said, I talked to Jack Marucci a lot, and he's told me stories of so many guys, and I'm sure y'all can attest to it, that, you know, they go in the NFL and they're like, wow, this is, you know, LSU prepared me so much for this. Like, th- this is not as, not to say difficult, but the process is very similar. Football-wise, I, you know, they prepared me very well. Um, Training-wise, I think so, too. You know, they, they don't call it NFLSU for no reason. Avery, this has been a lot of fun. We have a uh, we have a couple of questions that we want to ask you. We call these short snaps. These this will be the last thing that we that we cover uh, in your interview. And this has been a, a ton of fun for us. So, favorite away stadium to play at in your time at LSU? I want to say that Jordan Hare Auburn Stadium. That uh, might be, yeah, it might be a little biased, <laughs> but. Um, yeah. It's underrated. I, I, I've said that. I've answered that stadium multiple times to people. Yeah. I think uh, it's the loudest. I think I, outside of Baton Rouge, it's the loudest. Yeah, no, in my opinion, um, I think, I mean, the game in 2018 with the field goal and everything, like, that was, that was one of the loudest games we've ever been at. I, I do have to say Jordan Hare there. Okay. What's your least favorite away stadium? Probably the Swamp. I, I could say, like, Alabama Stadium is pretty fun, too. I, I like the light show and everything. I think that's cool. Yeah, I don't like the Swamp. I do think it's cool. It must be fun when you win there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is fun. Um, I have no idea. I call it. It's, it is very this, fun. Oh, you're talking, about, at, it, you're talking about it in Alabama. I've been in attendance in 2011, but I have never played in one there. So. Yeah, no, it, it, that is – I mean, I'm, what, one for three against them, so it's not that – nothing really to, to boast about too much. But, um, yeah, least favorite is probably Florida. Probably just – I mean, their student section – can literally touch you. I remember, what is it? I guess it was 2018. I remember they, they had some very kind things to say to you, Blake. Um, I mean, just like bottles of urine in like little whiskey shooters, yeah. like raining down from the student section. It's the swamp is the worst. It's, I do think it's it cool is, though when they play the John Mayer song and they all turn up. I think that's cool, but I just, I don't, I'm not a fan of their fan base. I'll take um, the next one. What is your favorite post game snack? I remember after the Natty, I think we had Popeyes. And I was like, wow. That, yes. That's we had like the chicken sandwiches. Yes. I'd never tried them before. And that was like when they were all big and stuff. And I was like, wow. That was when people were getting stabbed over Popeyes yeah. sandwiches. Yeah. They were like running out of buns and stuff. And I, we had it like. We had more than we could. We had more than we could ever need of yeah, Popeye's like, sandwich. This is awesome. That, I mean, so you're, you're in the, you're in the, the home state. You're never going to run out. Of yeah. Popeyes in Louisiana. No, not in, in, in New Orleans. No way. The one in Buffalo ran out. That's understandable. Yeah. No, it was, that was, that was probably the best meal. I don't, I also don't mind when they, <clears throat> Pluckers, Pluckers is pretty nice after the games too. 
when we played in New Orleans this year, we played two days after Christmas. It was a Monday night game. We we beat them. We beat the Saints, and then we had Drago's oysters out there. I swear, Drago's maybe his son was mm-hmm. is the one that like runs the business. He was like out there handing out like roast beef po boys, shrimp po boys, and stuff. And they legit had a char grill out there behind, like in the loading dock, whipping up these char grilled oysters for the guys. It was that was like top top notch. Yeah, post game snack. That's very very. I mean, that's a whole process to bring to bring like the. I mean, yeah. They they look like it hadn't been their first time doing that. Okay, well, I'm sure, I'm sure they had been prepared. But is a hot dog a sandwich? No, it's not, not at all. I know. Me and have you ever heard? So me and Preston have this debate that a slider is not a hamburger or a cheeseburger. I think it is. It's a mini cheeseburger. Exactly. But he does not. He he will he will what die. He think, what does he think it is? It's a, still a sandwich. It, it's a sandwich. No matter the size, it's not a cheeseburger. Then what is it? Oh, I, I, he just says it's a slider. Wow. We need to bring Preston on and have you back on, and we'll we could d- discuss this for an hour. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so much more a cheeseburger than it would be a sandwich. Even. I, I I don't claim to know how that man thinks. But <laughs> not All correct. right, la- last last one, um, and this is a this is a personal favorite. Uh, at a, the I think it was like maybe week five or week six this season, uh, we went to Kansas City. Sunday night football, um, we had a rain delay at halftime. Mm-hmm. So we were in the hallway, just kind of waiting it out. And Michelle Tafoya was in there. We were kind of munching on some snacks. And uh, we got to chatting about how thick our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were from the team. Uh, I, I said the, the ratio needs to be more like 60-40 peanut butter. These sandwiches were probably towing the 80-20 line. Do you have a PB&J ratio that, that when you make a PB&J, what's your ideal ratio? 50-50. That's how I do it. Wow. I think he's the first 50-50. Big, I think, big jelly guy, sounds like. Yeah. We ask, yeah. I think we've asked almost everybody that's come on the podcast. Yeah. I think a lot of guys are around 60-40-70-30. No, like you know those incrustable things? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's like the perfect amount. I think it's 50-50. In my, I mean, it's just my thing. I like 50-50. Okay. All right. Well, Avery, this has been an absolute blast. Thanks for coming on today. Best of luck in your uh, training. Stay healthy. When's Pro Day? When is, when's that? Uh, April 6th. April 6th. The countdown begins. All right. Well, um, this has been a ton of fun, and thanks for joining us, dude. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Avery. Best of luck. Well, that was our interview with Avery Atkins, former LSU kickoff specialist and punter. Uh, We here at After the Snap are wishing Avery the best of luck in his NFL ventures and hoping he lands on his feet somewhere soon. Blake, you ready for one final thought? Let's do it. Something interesting that I saw uh, run across this week Um, And I've said this for a while now, but I've always wondered why the NFL doesn't have some type of feeder program or minor league system um, to kind of buddy up with, obviously, the main uh, NFL league. And after the breaking news this week of the NFL partnership with the XFL, 
it seems as if this might, might be the start of that style of venture, you know, through, through, through my eyes. Uh, now, this is, this is likely a move. And I know that there's been some chatter about it, you know, basically for the NFL to put some ideas through, through the XFL so they can test them out and see, kind of see how they work. Um, which is, which is certainly an interesting point, you know, it's when it comes to, uh, you know, rules on special teams and, uh, you know, stuff like that, you know, kickoff rules and punt rules, which has been, uh, definitely brought up in the offseason, you know, obviously this year about possibly some rule changes. But, you know, when I think further down the line, I think that it's likely that this agreement might have had sort of a handshake deal or a handshake agreement that they would talk about feeder teams sometime in the future, whether it's players, coaches, you know, uh, support staff, the list kind of goes on, scouting department, stuff like that. Uh, teams could hire and let them develop through their system, kind of like the MLB does. And the NHL does the same thing. NBA obviously has the G League and, uh, you know, eventually sign them or hire them uh, onto the NFL roster or the coaching staff uh, when they feel they've developed enough. Um, so I think it's a, I think it's a great move, great move, great for the long-term status of the game uh, of the league in general. And I think it's um, you know I'll, I'll vote to the to the NFL after this week. My one final thought for this week is. Honestly, a topic that I am not too knowledgeable on, but I've been skeptical from the beginning. It's the topic of NFTs. And we've, Reed, you and I have kind of watched as this whole NFT thing has grown as we have been doing this podcast. And we've covered it a couple of times because of the NIL connection and players wanting to do their own NFTs and stuff. And I saw a couple of headlines this week about NFT owners, NFT creators being scammed out of millions and millions of dollars in value on their artwork or whatever it is. And in my opinion, this whole NFT thing is going to disappear just as fast as it's started. You and I haven't heard about NFTs for longer than what, a year maybe. And it's, it it seems like that things are starting to crumble. Hackers are starting to, you know, take advantage of people who want to buy the artwork. And there's just, because there's no regulation on it, you open up yourself for bad things to happen. And so it'll be interesting to see. And I may, I may be making a complete idiot, idiot of myself. And I may sound, you know, this may not age well, but in my opinion, the NFT world is just going to disappear into thin air as quickly as it, as it came here because there's really nothing behind the artwork. It's just, it's just digital art and there's nothing, there's nothing physical backing it. And I know that's the same with cryptocurrency and, and that's a, that's a completely different conversation, but 
when you have music or whatever, there's music is, is, is a different story. And, and I, I can see how NFTs would make sense in the, in the, in the music business. But when you can take a screenshot of a piece of artwork, it seems valueless in my opinion. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. I, we're kind of watching it unfold right now. And, you know, like I said, I could be making a complete idiot of myself and, you know, we get five years down the road and, and everybody's buying NFTs and who knows, that's my final thought for today. Thank you all for joining us on this week's episode of after the snap, as always follow us on social media at after the snap pod, subscribe anywhere where you listen to podcasts Give us a rating. Give us a review. That's how we grow. This has been After the Snap, tales from two brothers who live life upside down.